0: Please allow me to introduce our guest speaker, Karen Stee from the In Between Group in Oakland, California. Karen, we're glad to have you here. Hi, everybody. My name is Karen, and I am an alcoholic. And uh, thank you so much, Carrie, for inviting me. It is always an honor and a privilege <clears throat> to be able to speak for Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I'm an alcoholic. I'm a lot of other things too. And as I said when I introduced myself a, a week or so ago, you know, when I first came in, I had what my friend calls a bad case of the ants. I was an alcoholic and an addict. I did, you know, I drank and did drugs. I was clean and sober. And having come to Alcoholics Anonymous for a while, I do realize that I did that to let you guys know that I was a little cooler than the rest of you. You know, I was not just a garden variety alcoholic. I was wild and crazy. Um, But as I've been here for a while, I have learned about our traditions and I do stick to our singleness of purpose Um, because I think it helps protect our unity. But Anyway, welcome also to you newcomers. Kai, Richard, I am so glad you're here. I also think, you know, my personal definition of a newcomer is anybody who hasn't done all 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous because until you've done that and learned our new way of life, it's just very confusing. And I remember that first That first year of sobriety, honestly, I felt like I just could not think my way out of the paper bag. And, and, um, so I hope if you've had a rough ride recently, you have at least alcohol has beaten you into that state of reasonableness we talk about, where you're kind of willing to go to any lengths to get what we have. Um, so anyway. Let's just get right down to uh, what I was like, which, you know, I would say what I'm going to describe to you is how I was powerless over alcohol, how my life had become unmanageable. And, um, you know, while life is inherently un- unmanageable, I think for everyone, my life wasn't any more unmanageable than other people's lives until I started drinking alcoholically. So that's why, you know, that that form and that is very important, because the longer I drank, the more powerful alcohol became in my life. The more powerful alcohol became in my life, the less manageable my life became. But today, my life is manageable with God's help. So the first time I got drunk, I remember it clearly. And I absolutely loved the effect produced by alcohol from the very first time I tried it. And, you know, I was only 10 years old and um, I had that feeling that I could do anything, be anything and have anything I wanted. I had that feeling that the world was just full of possibilities. And actually alcohol gave me a feeling of power and that life and of manageability. I thought I could manage anything. I got the solution to everything. And that was the feeling that I chased for almost an additional 30 years. Um, <clears throat> because you know what? I just believe that my body responds differently to alcohol than a normal person's. Um, and you know, <clears throat> that uh, if. If you haven't read for the new people, The Doctor's Opinion, I am just it explained so much to me when I read that that I could not otherwise account for. You know, uh, and and Bill refers in a lot of our literature to how Dr. Silkworth, who wrote that, actually was one of the founders of he refers to him as one of the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous, in that If we didn't have that that particular understanding of what, you know, the disease of alcoholism was, we probably would not have gotten very far. And Dr. Silkworth is actually the person who, you know, said to Bill before he went to visit Dr. Bob, you know, get off of that religious thing. Just tell him the medical facts and explain he's doomed. and if, and if he hadn't done that, Dr. Bob might not have gotten sober. So, you know, when they talk about, they explain this phenomenon of craving. And I developed that early on when I was drinking. And that's that feeling that, you know, just more, more, more. If one is good, more is better. Just let me keep getting that feeling over and over again. Um, and you know, it's that feeling like when you're sitting at the bar and you just can't wait for the bartender to come back and give you another drink. Oh, I forgot to set my timer. Um, but, and you know, just that feeling like you can't wait to get out of work until you can go start drinking again. And you can't wait for the weekend or whatever you're doing, that phenomenon of craving and, um, I learned some good alcoholic tricks. You know, I didn't become an alcoholic at the age of 10. But as a teenager, I really started developing my alcoholic traits. And um, I learned some good alcoholic tricks. I learned that if I was starting to feel sick, instead of having to call her the night, I would just have my date pull over to the side of the road. I would make myself barf, and then I would be good to go for the next few hours. And I thought, oh, my God, this is like life-changing insight, right? I thought I'd found the key to things. I don't think normal people think that's such a wonderful insight like I did. But, you know, to me, that was great. I learned about hair of the dog. I learned that, you know, in the morning, if I had a hangover and I took a shot, it would make it better. I learned those little tricks about, you know, ordering two drinks at a time. I learned how to get people to buy drinks for me, all that kind of stuff that you learn. And also as a teenager, I did start having blackouts and I would end up in what I like to call morally ambiguous circumstances. Kind of wouldn't know how I got there, but I had that deep down feeling that it probably wasn't all good. Uh, And also as a teenager, I got too smart for God. You know, I thought if you're kind of a soft sister and you need something to depend on, well, poor you and maybe you needed God in your life. But If you're a smart cookie like I thought I was, you didn't need any of that kind of stuff. So... You know, that that was me as a teenager. And, you know, is so in how it works, uh, it says, you know, our personal adventures. I love that phrase. Our personal adventures before and after make their three pertinent ideas. A, that we were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives. B, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. And C, that God couldn't. would if he was so? So a couple of examples of my personal adventures before and after. Um uh, uh, I had been arrested on, you know, stopped on one of my many DUIs. This is back in the 70s, back in the day. You know, you could get a bunch of DUIs and they wouldn't take away your license. Uh, and at one of these times I had been um Sentenced to go to a drunk driving class at, at the Cow Palace. You guys probably aren't familiar with the Cow Palace, but it's a big arena. And uh, they used to hold rock shows and all kinds of things there. It was originally built for as an agricultural thing. But anyway, so I drive up to the place on a Saturday morning. And I notice that there are these cones set up in kind of like a course in the parking lot. So, I but I park, I get out of my car, I go into the meeting and uh, into the room and it's this huge room and I walk past a table and it's got all kinds of bottles of liquor on it. And I'm thinking, well, that's kind of funny because I thought the whole point of this was not drinking and driving. So, the instructor starts explaining what's going to happen And he said they are going to take two volunteers, one male and one female, and they are going to um, have us have them drive this course that they've set up on the outside. And then every 15 minutes, they would give us a shot of alcohol. I'm kind of like telegraphing the end of the story on this one. But but anyway, so that they would give us a couple of shots of alcohol, and then the rest of the class would get to watch how we responded when we drove that class. Now, I don't know how they got away with it then. They would probably be sued silly if they did something like that now, but back in the day. So anyway, they asked for that woman drunk volunteer, and my go- my hand goes flying up in the air. So fast, I practically dislocate my shoulder and the guy looks at me and he picks me and I like can't believe my luck. Right. I turn around to gloat over all the other people who didn't get picked and nobody else even had their hands up. So I always say, you know, none of you guys was in that room because I know you would have probably had your hands up, too. To me, this was a great opportunity, right? Free drunk, drink as much as I can. Plus, I'm very used to driving drunk. So this is something I think I'm pretty good at. And anyway, the, as the thing goes on, and at first it's going really well, and you know, I'm beating the pants off the guy, which I always prided myself that I could hold my liquor really well. And then it's like, all of a sudden, things get very fuzzy. And I kind of remember the car traveling backwards when it was supposed to be going forward. And I have this like vision of cones flying up in the air and crowds scattering backwards. I, I remember that. Long story short, I end up going home and spending the night with the male drunk volunteer, because that's what we do, don't you know? And then waking up the next morning, guys, and, you know, the, the four horsemen were there. I was like, I had no idea where I was. I didn't even know what town I was in. I didn't know where, you know, who I was with. I'm looking around. I'm in this bedroom filled with dirty clothes and mattress on the floor. And it just, I was like, how did I end up here? And worst of all, because of course they hadn't let me drive there. I didn't even have the keys. I don't, I didn't know where my car was because, because frankly, that wasn't the first time I ended up in a situation similar to that, but At least I had an escape route because I would just get in my car, but you know, nothing. It was like so unmanageable and that feeling of despair of like, oh my God, how did I get myself into this circumstance again? You know, just like incomprehensible demoralization. That's the kind of unmanageability that was in my life. Another thing that used to happen to me that was kind of unmanageable. I don't know if you guys have ever been inside a car uh, that didn't have handles on the inside. Um, There are some cars that they make that you get into and there's no handles on the inside. Like those cars are usually made in black and white. They come in black and white and. They put you inside the back and you think you're in a car, but when you try to get out of the car, there's no handles on the doors. That's You're pretty powerless under those circumstances. That's pretty unmanageable. When you're in a car, if you find yourself in a car with no handles on the inside doors, your life is probably unmanageable and you may be powerless. So anyway, I realize now, That once I developed that phenomenon of craving as a teenager, I was utterly screwed. Even though I didn't know it. It says in the doctor's opinion, he uses the word doomed. And I love that because I was really beyond human aid. Didn't even know it. For many, many years, all I was doing was trying to find that magic formula to drink the way I wanted to drink and not to suffer the consequences. You know, I didn't want to stop drinking for many years. I just wanted to drink the way I like to drink and not have any consequences. So some of the methods that I tried to manage my drinking, you know, in addition to that wonderful list on page 39, I always would try. I thought that the solution was to change the outside circumstances. So, you know, I would be working and things would start to go downhill at work. So I'd get fired and I'd look for another job. And I think, oh, a new job will solve the problem. Or I would have a boyfriend and things would start to go downhill with the relationship. And I would think, oh, a new boyfriend will solve the problem. Or two boyfriends would solve the problem but you know all of that all of that was doomed i also tried new substances to to try to manage my alcohol and um i just want to address that because you know one of our trustees wrote an article a couple of years ago about <clears throat> the importance of sticking to our singleness of purpose because the denial of alcohol is so much stronger than the denial of drugs. And I'll tell you, in my personal experience, it's kind of hard to deny you're an addict when you're standing in line at the methadone clinic. It's 6.30 in the morning. You're leaning up against the wall with a bunch of other runny-nosed low lives. And the situation is pretty clear. Yes, I'm an addict. But alcohol, cunning, baffling, and powerful. Alcohol always said it was my friend. It always said to me, you can stop those other things, but I'm your friend. You won't get into any trouble with me. And if you go to a party, they're not passing around trays of powders and syringes. They're passing around these trays of these beautiful long stem glasses, and there's bubbles going up the side. They're not advertising crack cocaine in magazines, but you see all these nice bottles of liquor on the billboards in every place. Alcohol, cunning, baffling, and powerful. That was the one that I always thought was okay. And my history, because I am more of a binge drinker, was just characterized by these endless attempts to clean up my act, get sober for a while, things would get better. And then inevitably I would end up worse than I was before. And it was just lather, rinse, repeat, lather, rinse, repeat. It wasn't hard to get sober. I did that many, many times. I was just never able to stay sober. And I was always trying to get back to that old feeling that alcohol used to give me. And it happened less and less frequently as they continued to drink. Um, You know, at the end, my life was nothing but making stupid decisions, constantly disappointing people who had trusted, or cared about me. I was a thieving employee. I thought, you know, if it's in the office and I can carry it and it will fit in my car, then kind of it belongs to me. I was a disrespectful daughter. You know, I would depend on my parents to help me out financially. I would ask them for money. Um, And yet I would sort of have the superior attitude of arrogance toward them. Like, you guys are such chumps. And I know so much better than you. And um, I was a selfish sister. I would call my sister when, you know, I needed to get bailed out of jail or I needed to have her come rescue me from some dangerous situation I'd got into, but I didn't really just call her for anything about her. It was always about me. Uh, I was a really, I was an unfaithful girlfriend, you know. I mean, I thought I loved these guys. I told myself I loved guys, but you know, if I needed money and I had to hog my engagement ring to get some, oh well. That's how it goes, you know. And I'd go always go, uh, this guy doesn't treat me right. I, I need to find somebody else, right? Uh, but the most important thing to me, the most important thing was that in the end, I was a bad mother, you know. Um, I wish I could tell you that the first time I saw that look in my son's eyes, you know, I had a son when I was quite young, And I always said, you know, the one thing I will not let my drinking interfere with is my ability to be a good mom. And so, you know, that first time I saw that look in his eyes that was like, oh, my God, mom is drunk again. I wish I could tell you that that was my wake up call, because I had heard women, people in the fellowship say that was it. That was my wake up call. I wanna tell you, I saw that look in my son's eyes many, many times. And every time I saw it, I would say, this will never happen again. You know, this will never happen again. And maybe it wouldn't for a couple of weeks, more likely a couple of days, but inevitably I would see that look in his eyes again. And how unmanageable is that, right? The one thing I care about more than anything else in the world and just watching myself over and over again. And it's so important to me to remember that today in in sobriety, because I know without a doubt that, you know, one drink can bring me right back to that place where I'm failing the people who love me and depend on me over and over again. Uh, and our literature talks about being a tornado. I liked. It. I think I was like a centrifuge. Um, you know those spinners they have on the playground where, like, if you stand in the middle and then they spin it round and round, and gradually, you know, the kids fall off of it. And that's what I was like. I was like the axis of that spinner. And it started spinning faster and faster until everything that I had in my life was gradually pulled away from me by the forces of alcohol and the stupid decisions that I made around alcohol. And, you know, first of the things that flew off were my dignity, my self respect, the respect of others. Didn't care about any of that stuff too much. I just thought that was, you know, whatever. It started pulling off jobs and it started pulling off the cars and started pulling off the relationships. And then finally, it pulled off like that one thing that I thought was more precious than anything I had, which was my ability to be a good mother to my son. You know, I think one of the most basic instincts that we have as human beings, is to nurture our children. And, you know, for so long, I just tried to grab onto him and hold him and keep him from getting pulled off. But eventually it pulled off too. And he never stopped loving me, but he just couldn't He couldn't look me in the eye anymore. And he kept making excuses not to be with me. So, so that's what I was like. And then finally, due to Uh, You know, a series of events, which is basically irrelevant, because I think we all come to our own tipping point, that place where we say, I just cannot live one more day like this. I cannot spend one more day of my life like this. And we have that desperation. And I came into Alcoholics Anonymous for real on March 20th of 1987. And I have been sober ever since. So, like I said before, I do think I'm off to a good start. Got that first difficult 30 years out of the way. And, you know, today, just on a daily basis, I ask God to help me stay sober today. And so I think I'll stay sober tonight. Uh, So what happened? Why am I sober today? You know, the simple, the short answer is I did the steps with the sponsor, and I learned a new way of life. That's how it works. You know, and I got to tell you, I thought the idea of getting a sponsor was just horrible. You know, when you guys said, get a sponsor, I thought, ah, you're just talking crazy talk now. You know, that's insulting. I know how to read. What do I need a sponsor for? But I had that desperation that's born of, you know, that was the last gift that alcohol gave me. And so I was willing to do whatever you suggested. And turned out to, I got a sponsor, turned out to be one of the best decisions I've made uh, out of many good decisions that you guys have guided me to make. So with that sponsor, I did step one. And because you guys talked about your own experiences with and your powerlessness over alcohol, I was able to identify and see mine. And that's why I think it is very important for us when we sh- when I share to share my experiences, what I was really like, my experiences with alcohol. Because if all you guys were talking about was how you were working on this step or that step, step and how you were growing spiritually, I'd have gone, man, I'm in the wrong place, right? But you talked about your stories with alcohol and I could relate to that. And that's how I learned to access that inner alcoholic. Because like I said, when I first came in, it was really clear. I was addicted to everything that was available on the streets, you know, in by 1986. But alcohol, I still had this little idea that it was my friend. But you talked about alcohol, and I realized alcohol was the first thing that ever gave me that feeling that I chased through any other substance I could find for the next almost 30 years. So then in step two, because I had accepted that my situation was, that, was hopeless without some spiritual aid, I chose to accept a higher power into my life. And since I was a teenager, I had been a very strident agnostic. I was the kind of person that, like, if you mentioned God, I would start arguing with you, whether I knew you or not, and tell you how stupid you are. But that chapter, We Agnostics, again, because I was able to read it with this open and willing mind, there is some amazing stuff in that chapter. And the first thing was, you know, where it says deep down inside every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. And I remembered when I was young, you know, I wasn't brought up with a punishing God. There was a loving God. Jesus loved me. You know, I said my prayers at night. And that was a really good feeling. And I remembered the kind of feeling of safety that I had on earth. And then it says either God is or God is not. What is, uh, no, 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 no. Then it says, who was I to say there was no God? And I thought, yeah, you know what? Here in my arrogance, I've been going, eh, that's just crazy talk. And I thought that throughout, throughout the millennia of recorded history, there have always been references to powers greater than human powers. And who am I to, Who was I to say that that was Bunker? And the final thing was either God is or God is not what was our choice to be. And the very fact that they used that word choice absolutely just changed everything for me. Because I realized this doesn't have to be some long logical tautology that I create in my mind. I don't need any Venn diagrams for this. Either God is or God isn't, and I get to make a choice. So ever since then, I have simply made a choice to believe in God. Uh, So then in step three, because I admitted I was an alcoholic, now I had a higher power in my life. I agreed to follow the directions that were given to me so clearly in the rest of the steps. I took inventory for the first time in my life. And for any of those of you who haven't done that yet, this is not just an exercise in self-criticism. The fourth step absolutely like changed my whole perspective on life. It was the most enlightening thing. Yeah, I thought it was enlightening to find out I could barf and drink for another three hours. This is true enlightenment. (laughs) And, um, you know, I shared that information with God and another human being. I acknowledged my defects of character to the extent that I was able at the time and asked God to remove them. I made restitution for harms that I had done and I started to be of service to others. And that's it. That was it. As the result of doing the steps, I had a spiritual awakening which restored me to perfect sanity regarding the first drink. Not in a lot of other ways, but regarding the first drink. And that's what it talks about over and over in the literature. The insanity of the first drink. That crazy thought that maybe I can just have one or two this time and I won't get into so much trouble like I used to before. So I had been restored to perfect sanity regarding that thought. And also, you know what? I'm not one of those people who says that they are sober today only by the grace of God. Because I think that sends a slightly dangerous message to the newcomer. Uh, It took all the willingness that I had to follow directions. And, you know, our literature refers to that as the proper use of the will. Now, make no mistake. There is no way in the world that I could have stayed sober without God's help and without your help. But the loving God of my understanding isn't this puppet master who plucks one alcoholic out of the mire of alcoholic despair and leaves another alcoholic to die in the gutter. I truly believe that a loving God of my understanding wants any alcoholic of my faith to be sober. But that does demand action and lots of effort on my part. And like I said, sometimes it took all the willingness I had to follow your directions. So, you know, our adventures, then now we'll get to our adventures after, because I have, there's kind of an analogy if um, on this. Um, you know, it says, God, the last pertinent idea is God could and what if he recited. So kind of the analogy that I like to use is I'd been sober about 10 years. I don't know. This is so, you know, 20, 25 years ago, 10 or 15 years. I don't know. Anyway, I had gone with my family to Hawaii and we were vacationing in Hawaii and we were scuba diving. No, we were uh, snorkeling. And, you know, we were all in a group and they said, now stay in the group. Don't wander too far from the group. And me, with my little brain, I'm going, oh, these fish are so beautiful. And, you know, those directions might be for somebody else. But I'm just going to wander off a little bit. And I'm following the fish. And all of a sudden, I find myself getting, like, pushed up into this uh, coral reef. So I bring my head above the water. And I look around. And I see that... The group I was with is far away from me and the shore is way far away from me. And I realized that I might be in a little bit of trouble. And so I start like flailing my hands and, and, and the current is pushing me into this coral reef and my legs are starting to bleed and I'm starting to think sharks coming and, uh, And my son ended up, my son came over and he swam over to me. And he said to me, mom, the current is way too strong. I cannot carry you in. Even though he's a strong swimmer, he said, I cannot carry you in. And, you know, for the first time I really saw, I think, you know, we all, we all have this knowledge that people die but also this assumption that it's not going to be me today. And, you know, I really saw the possibility that I was, might not make it out alive. And on top of that, my son had come over to help me. Um, so thankfully, I had been sober long enough to know what to do when my life is in danger. So I closed my eyes. I took a deep breath. I said the third step prayer. And then, guys, I swam my ass off. I swam harder than I have ever swum before. I had I swam harder than I've ever done anything physically before. And we swam in and we swam toward shore. And my son stayed just ahead of me the whole time, right ahead of me so that he was there. And then sometimes I would get so exhausted I had to stop for a few times and tread water. But, you know, the current was so strong that even when you're treading water, it, would, it was pulling me back out. And he'd go, Mom, we have to keep going. We have to keep going. He swam with me the whole way in until I finally got my feet on the sand. And that is exactly what you guys have done for me. You stayed with me the whole time. You told me we can't do it for you, Karen, but you will not ever have to be alone again. We will be with you every step of the way, and you can't tread water for too long. You have God to keep going. So that's how, you know, that's how my life is manageable today. I have your help. I have God's help. And today I can do it one day at a time. So what am I like today? I'll tell you, my relationship to others and to the world around me is radically different because i do try one day at a time to practice the principles in all my affairs day every single day i am on steps 10 11 and 12 i'm not one of these people who says i do step 3 every day i say the third step prayer every day but i was taught that you know once i did step 3 that just meant i was going to go on through the rest of the steps now when i'm taking my will back That's my step 11 practice. And that's not just a pedantic distinction, guys. I believe that is how the program is designed. Steps one through nine taught me a new way of life. Steps 10, 11, and 12 are how I stay on the path and I continue to grow in that new life. So I surrender on a daily basis to the kind and loving God that AA gave back to me, that God that I rejected so many years ago. That son who never stopped loving me, but he just couldn't look at me or be with me. The day he is an active part of my daily life. The day he's a member of our fellowship. My grandbabies, my grandbabies, they're adults now. They have never seen me drunk. I get to be a sober example to my grandson who is struggling with our disease. Uh, I was able to make amends to those parents to whom I was so disrespectful. I was able to be useful to them when they were at the end of their lives. I was able to become a productive member of society. Uh, And, you know, I just became happily and usefully whole. Most of the time, I am just grateful for the fact that I'm alive today Because an alcoholic of my type doesn't get to live this long, usually. And no matter what the circumstances, I believe that we can make a choice to be happy. That I can make a choice to be happy. That's not just something that happens to me. I need to make an active choice based on my level of gratitude. So, you know, I'll end with service because I always do. And, you know, like in my drowning analogy, you all taught me that once I got back onto the beach, I needed to go back out there and help others swim in. I need to be actively in service to other alcoholics. And in the beginning, that meant cleaning ashtrays or, you know, today in these digital times, maybe it means helping out on the Zoom rooms or whatever. Uh, talking to newcomers, I was told you know what if you've got 30 days of sobriety, maybe you can't transmit what you don't have but you can tell them how you got 30 <clears throat> if somebody only has three days um, and uh, so I learned early on you know my sponsor said we do all the steps we'll do them like they're written in the literature and we'll do them in order except. You do get to do that part of step 12 and you can begin being of service to others right away. So there are two things specifically that have been consistent in my life since 1987. The first is sponsorship. Uh, I got asked I don't know, probably shortly after I finished the 12step. To, to sponsor somebody else. And I have been blessed to work with many, many women who have invited me to join them in their journey of sobriety. And first of all, we do the steps and I get to transmit the tools that were transmitted for me to me, which is the 12 steps. And that's the bottom of our triangle recovery. And then when we're done with the steps, they go, oh, good, we're done. And I go, oh, no. Now go to tradition one, and we'll read tradition one, and we'll study that. And then I get to transmit the tools of the traditions, which is the unity arm of our triangle. And then we get to tradition 12, and they go, are we done yet? And I go, nope, but we're more than halfway there. And then we start reading the concepts and studying them together. And that way I get to transmit the tools of the third arm of the triangle, which is service. So, you know, I, um, I really feel that it's incumbent on those of us who have been given the honor of sponsorship to transmit all 36 principles of alcoholics, all three legacies that have been given to us, not just the steps. And you know what? I don't have time for the story, but because I do that, and my sponsees do that with their sponsees, when our inner group decided that it was perfectly okay to accept a $150,000 bequest, we were able to say, oh, hell no, back that truck up, folks. We have a little thing called the traditions and the concepts that says, no, Nuh, no, we don't get to do that. But, you know, the trifecta, For, I think, the trifecta of a well-rounded service life is sponsorship, working one-on-one with another alcoholic, having a service commitment at meeting level, if your group needs you, and doing service at the broader level, because I owe AA a debt that I will never be able to repay. Uh, So, the service at the broader level you know, all of our service entities need us. And I will say, I hear people go, I can't go to those meetings. They're so boring. They're so political. At the same time, benefiting from the services that every one of those entities provides, you know, benefiting from the meeting lists, benefiting from our general service structure. All of these benefits that we get because the service structures of AA are active and have volunteers, and they all need us. So, you know, whether it's general service, intergroup, or it's H&I, find what works for you. I think that there is a service commitment. You know, none of us is unique in terms of being alcoholics, but I think we are all unique and we have this special combination of assets and defects. And whatever your assets and defects are, there is a service commitment that will work for you. And for me, it was with H&I. You know, I realized early on that there are plenty of alcoholics who are confined for decades for doing exactly what I did, but they didn't get caught in it. You know, I was drunk. I was driving. I smashed my car into other cars. Just so happened that those other cars didn't have people in them. Somebody else smashed up into a car that did have people in, and they're doing life sentences for vehicular homicide. So, you know, H&I, have always just felt, I've been doing H&I since 1987. It just, for me, feels like where I belong. And I am so grateful to H&I for having given me the opportunity to be a service. And, you know, we've been able to develop this wonderful new service where we are bringing one-on-one sponsorship to prisoners in state prisons. And, you know, when you're a member of a service committee, this is the selfish thing that, you know, this is not a selfish program. Anybody says that I, I feel compelled to beat them with my big book because selfishness is the problem, not the solution. But There are so many rewards for doing service. And the people that you meet on your journey of service just blows my mind. Just like the conversation we started having at the beginning of this meeting of like, and I get to find out new things about how to do service all the time. So that's it. I think my time is about up. I want to close to you newcomers, uh, relative newcomers, you know, Just please don't drink today. Ask God, however you understand God, to help you not drink today and come back tomorrow. You know, get a sponsor, start working the steps. Um, And that's it. I want to thank you too for inviting me to be of service and for helping me to stay sober today. And I hope hope if you've gotten nothing else from my share, That you at least believe it worked. If it worked for me, it can work for you. Thank you.